when you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things. You see some not so interesting things. <laughs> and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time. We compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, hey, we like to have a good time, okay? Nos gusta to goof <laughs> around, all right? We have hungry pantry no, bonds that no, might startle you. It's a long story. We, we feed them our materials. Art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret. So if this all sounds good to you, join us on Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. Well, I saw that you were reuniting with Scott for a Mouth Congress right before the pandemic happened. Um, am I right about that? Yeah, well, we made a feature film of our band. Yeah. And we were due to premiere at the Kingston Canadian Film Festival on March 14th. And on the 12th, they shut down the festival. So we were devastated. That was going to be our, our premiere, our world yeah. premiere. Um, we did it a year later with them online. And honestly, uh, having a film premiere online was really kind of pathetic and anticlimactic. I mean, we we envisioned ourselves in a room full of applauding fans, yeah. answering questions and just, you know, shrimp rings and all those things you get with film festivals. And instead it was the two of us sitting in my living room, all dressed up. We put a picture of um, Kate Hudson's family from the Oscars, just so it would seem like we were in a, a crowd of people, like in a party room. From Rockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite Canadian content. This episode marks our final kick of the can for the kids in the hall. I sit down for an interview with the one and only Paul Bellini, the man in the towel. He's a Gemini-winning and Emmy-nominated comedy writer who began his career as a writer for the original Kids in the Hall series, as well as lending his talents to This Hour Has 22 Minutes. With his longtime collaborator, Scott Thompson, He's also the co-author of Buddy Babylon, the autobiography of Buddy Cole. In our interview, we talk about how Bellini first hooked up with the kids in the hall, what it was like to write on the show, and of course, we dive into the origins of the Touch Bellini contest. So without further ado, here's that interview. So if we could, let's, um, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born and raised in Timmins, Ontario, which most people recognize as the hometown of Shania Twain. But Timmins is like a really remote mining town. It's like 440 miles north of Toronto. Um, not just physically, but psychologically. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a small town. Um, and I like that environment as a teenager. It's sort of like an almost idyllic movie type uh, growing up a coming of age story type thing but you're anxious to leave it because uh i was a culture little kid i was like reading the new yorker and, and looking at watching foreign films and i knew that in order to really fulfill that i had to be in a city and um i wanted to escape so i decided to study film at york university because i knew that the program was not offered anywhere north of toronto so I was able to graduate with honors in film studies and everybody went, well, what are you going to do with that? And the point was made because the first five years out of school, I was an office temp. Right. 
<laughs> Eventually, you know, my friend from university became a member of a famous comedy troupe. And because I was always hanging around with them, I was kind of sucked into that vortex. And that's how it all started. Well, let's let's talk about that, friend. Let's talk about Scott Thompson. How did you first meet Scott? Well, Scott used to wear long johns uh, around the building. We were in a residence, right? We were in Vanier residence. And we had a cafeteria at the basement of the building. And he would go to the cafeteria wearing long johns, which was very weird. I mean, that's someone who really wants your attention. He was a super weirdo. Um. Later on in our friendship, we sort of both got the idea that each other was gay, but we were heavily closeted. This was 1978 to 82. And just as we're about to come out, AIDS hits. Mm -hmm. So that was a nightmare. We both came out. He came out, I think, 81. I came out 83. Um, and, you know, we're in the midst of AIDS. So it was a nightmare and it really wasn't that much fun. It was a terrible time to be going through that but i think that's what made us creative we had to put all our uh in sexual enthusiasm into making comedy and rock and roll it's that's what saved us essentially so when did you make your first connection with the with the, with the troop scott joined the troop in late 1984 which is around the same time we had started mouth congress <laughs> uh, the rock band in in my basement he phoned me one day and he said i met these guys they're really cool i'm going to be part of their uh, their improv show. And do you want to come? I said, sure. It was like January, 1985, 20 minutes into the show. I thought this is fantastic. I've never seen anything like this. For one thing, they did female characters and they did them really well. And that was like, I remember watching Mark as his like Nina character pretending to go through a rack of clothes at a, at a clothing store. And I'm watching this thinking, this is fantastic. Very simple, but totally true and real and effective and hilarious. So I was an early convert. It only took one show. Were you involved at all in the, the production of the pilot? No, that was stuff that they had written uh, in the previous years and had workshopped in New York when they were, they spent a year in New York doing a residency. Um, and even the first year, they did not hire writers in the first year of the show. They didn't have to. They had a, a giant collection of great sketches that had been workshopped at the Rivoli for four years. Writing, hiring writers didn't come until the beginning of second year. So at what point were you, were you tapped to come into the writer's room? Well, because I was Scott's friend and because Scott is the odd duck. He's the gay one. He was originally an actor rather than coming through a comedy background um, because he always had that activist bent and because he's a crazy man on stage, he has great energy. Um, that was my road in because I understood him. So a lot of times Scott would work on a monologue. He'd ask me my advice. A lot of times we'd shoot them on video, rewatch them a hundred times, figure out the best beats and, and the, the jokes and what worked for the character. So that was no different. Writing for the kids in the hall was no different from Mouth Congress or the student newspaper or our short films. It was all just me and Scott doing stuff, right? How would you describe your, your dynamic with Scott when you're writing together? Uh, well, it feels very top and bottom, <laughs> to, to borrow a gay phrase. Scott's very alpha. He's loud. He's forceful. He has a lot of ideas, but 
about half of them are are just not usable. I'm really methodical. I'm firmly planted. I'm calm, um, logical. So I take his craziness and kind of alkalize it. Is that the word? Make it palatable. Um, And then somehow that filters out into a great piece of work that he's able to perform. So it's um, a, a, a chemistry where a process is involved where um, his craziness has to be tempered by my laziness in order to create something that works. It's not the dirty words. I have enormous respect for filth. (laughs) It's the hate. Andrew Dice Clay is not the new Lenny Bruce. I am. He and Eddie Murphy are just pissed off because they give off such a faggy vibe. <laughs> I'm not saying they're gay. <laughs> I'm just saying they sure smell like rough trade to me. <laughs> and the saddest thing of all is, I'd still like to have sex with both of them. <laughs> oh, sure, I'd feel guilty. But you know what? All I think it would take is about 20 bucks. This is great. I feel like Farrah Fawcett in extremities. Anyways, there'll be none of that hatred here at Buddy's. Just family entertainment for the queer nation. (laughs) No stand-up comedy allowed. A place where the brothers can be sisters, the sisters can be parents, and I can be siblings. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm gay. I'm just saying, boys, you don't want to run into me in a dark alley. We'll return to the City TV premiere of The Karate Kid. At the top of the show, you heard us talking about Mouth Congress, the band which Paul Bellini co-founded with Scott Thompson. Well, Mouth Congress recently released Waiting for Henry, a special double LP compilation of the band's best recordings. You can find it for sale on CaptureTracks.com and all major music streamers. Here's just a little taste. Now, back to our program. Were you ever part of um, theater sports or Second City or anything like that? Did you? Well, I'm not a performer. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have performer chops. Um, I don't have, I never studied acting. I don't have any of those skills. You, you say you're not a performer, but you're one of the, the iconic recurring characters on the series. Yeah, but look how that was conceived. Well, well tell me about that. Tell me, what's the origin of Bellini the legend? Yeah, well, the producers in second year, they suggested a a contest so we could gauge viewership. And what is the prize? So one of them said, you know, we can have like a a car. And Bruce said, only if we send them like some beat up shitbox from the wrecking yard. And then it was reconsidered. Well, how do you ship that? That's going to cost a fortune. So it was a lot of back and forth. Do we want to bring the winners into Toronto and have dinner with the kids? And everybody went, ooh. 
Finally, Mark said, I think the prize should be Bellini in a towel. And it was so absurd. And it was just, he spoke at just the right moment. Everybody looked at me and burst out laughing. And they all had the image in their heads at exactly the same moment. And I just thought, okay, sure. I didn't, I didn't know what I was saying yes to. Just that I really had to say yes because everybody was looking at me. The next day, I'm standing in a park wearing a towel and posing for pictures and thinking, okay, just go with it. I've always had this kind of body, this Hitchcockian body. And I think the kids understood how to make that comedic. That I also have a very deadpan face, which is kind of, you know, like Buster Keaton. So it's, it's fun to project onto my face. What is he thinking? There's a certain enigmatic quality. And just me in a towel is a very simple thing. I mean, it's basically a gay bathhouse image. Um, I think I told Mark that I went to a gay bathhouse. Yeah. And he asked me to explain it. And I did. And I guess that's stuck in his mind. So when it came time to create a prize, that's what he thought would be a great prize for our viewers. Hey, viewers. Did you know that you've been watching The Phone Show? That's right, a Kids in the Hall theme show based loosely around the telephone. So what'd you think? Well, if you did think something, give us a call at the number below. Because as incentive, one of the callers will be selected to win at random the Touch Paul Bellini contest. That's right, we'll deliver our guy to your home or place of work so that you can touch Bellini. Whether you hug him, pinch him, or just stand a few feet back and poke at him with a stick, you'll be spending quality time with an interesting physical specimen. So call us now, because we do have operators standing by. Call now. Call often. Unless, of course, this is a rerun. In which case, I wonder if I'm dead. Attention, citizens. Phone this number right now. If you were one of the first 100 callers... And it turned out to be right. Um... All of a sudden, I'm doing this towel guy thing over and over again. The producers loved it because no makeup, no rehearsal, no lines. <laughs> I didn't have to be miked. All I'd have to do was walk by and the crowd would go ballistic. It was comedy gold. It was also production gold. I mean, it was so easy to do. And it grew from there. Now, were the, the results of that first contest, the, the Touch Bellini contest, were they legitimate? Did you, did you really pick a winner and go to St. Petersburg, Florida? Uh, they were absolutely genuine. And those, for, we had two contests, right? We had one in Canada and one in the States because CBC and HBO. The Canadian winner that year was a guy who lived very far away uh, in Perth, Andover, um, in New Brunswick. And we had to fly to Fredericton and stay in a hotel. The next day, we rented a car and drove out to the country where he lived, um, kind of on a farm. That was great fun. But it was cold. It was November. Florida, thank God. that We did that one in January. And it was like, oh, thank God I don't have to do another winter shoot with another shirt on. Um, and we went to Florida. It was these two crazy ladies who had their own cable comedy show. So they were very excited. Tell Lauren Michaels about how great we are, this sort of thing. Yeah. And that night they took me to a concert to see Casey and the Sunshine Band in this little club in Tampa, which is where the band is from. And it was the entire original 11-person 11 li 11 lineup. It, it blew me away. 
It was still to this day one of my most satisfying evenings because I love disco music. And here I was seeing one of the best bands live uh, 10 feet away from me. So I'm always grateful to those two ladies for that. And that was the Bellini contest. Audiences loved them. So we had to do another one two years later. So yeah, I've been going back to, to old episodes. So that, that was a legitimate contest. It wasn't just a callback to the earlier contest. Nope, absolutely. We had real entries. With that contest, we drew names out of a barrel. Right. With the second contest, we decided to make it more craft-oriented. Viewers had to draw a picture of me when they saw me in the episode. And at the end of that episode, a miniature version of me walks out of a box of condoms at the end of the Bauer sketch. So all of a sudden, we had about 200 drawings of various degrees of skill of me standing next to a giant condom box. And uh, so that was more about, we still put the names in the barrel and picked at random, but that's how that one was done. There he is, Bellini. Bellini wings into our winter city, our nation's capital, Ottawa. As Bellini travels through the air, he contemplates the winner and what he must look like. Bellini arrives and is greeted by one of Canada's finest. You're coming with me, jokes the Mountie. Seriously, sir, it's a pleasure. And before you know it, Bellini meets the winner. Let's eat, urges the winner. Not so fast, motions Bellini. We've forgotten one thing. There's my prize, says the winner. There's my all-Canadian breakfast and fish for Bellini, because I know that's all he eats. Not so fast, urges the airport chef. And the fish is deboned. They dig in. Now, how involved were you with the formation of the Bellini character? You know, things like he only eats fish, he likes improv improvisational xylophone music. I felt that as a writer, that it was a conflict of interest, that this was a gift that was given to me and that I had no say in the creative direction. So the idea of me not speaking was not my idea, which I'm fine with. All that fish and buttermilk, those are Bruce McCullough jokes. Everyone was kind of allowed to build the Bellini character except Bellini. I was just allowed to do it. So my creation, my, my contribution, was just figuring out how to stand and give the camera a certain deadpan look. We always had great directors who knew what to do as well. So I actually have very little involvement in the whole thing. Now, did you did you keep anything? Did you keep the towel? Did you keep the, the pop-up book they made for Bellini Day? Uh, the towel, no. Those were 100, 100 wet, uh, just cloths. How would you call them? Terry cloth. No, I, I don't have any of those. But I kept the pop-up book. Um, I also have, so this was the Bellini tree ornament. <laughs> so that was actually, um, uh, this little novelty shop. It was, um, a monk that would flip around in an outhouse and pee. And I guess a little stream of water comes out from the pee pee. Yeah. And what they did is they painted it to look like my hairline <laughs> and then put a little towel on it. So it was very cute. They did, they did about 10 of those. And I have, I think I have two of them. Um, then more recently, uh, somebody made this. 
So That's it's a cool. little Bellini figurine. So um, I always have those kind of little souvenirs and stuff. Um, the book is fantastic, though. I, I guess I'm going to will it to an archives because it's just too beautiful to ever let out of my sight. No, no, of course, keep it. And make sure you will it somewhere as well. You're one of the iconic characters like Chicken Lady and Gavin and Cabbage Head and Buddy Cole. One of those instantly recognizable, um, you know, once I see it, I, I know exactly what I'm watching characters. Well, the iconic characters are the ones that lent themselves best to reinterpretation. So, you know, the original plan was to never repeat a character. And we realized very quickly that you kind of have to because, you know, over the course of five years, we televised over 700 sketches. And there was probably another 150 that never made it to air. Right. So you have to do more cabbage heads. You have to do more Gavins. You have to because TV is a beast that eats material. So uh, those characters lent themselves best to, to being in different situations. They were not one dimensional. They had a, a kind of a life of their own. And you could keep writing stuff for those characters. After these messages, we'll be right back. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is sponsored by Audible. Do you like getting information through your ears? Well, Audible has an unmatched catalog of audio, podcasts, and original programming. And you can try it for 30 days free by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. Listeners to this podcast might enjoy listening to One Dumb Guy, Paul Meyer's authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall, or... The Audible original podcast, Highly Legal, hosted by Jay Baruchel and written by kids biographer John Semley. But if you're signing up for Audible today, and I pray that you do, if you're signing up for Audible today and you're going to download just one book for free, I'm going to recommend Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, as read by the author. You like comedy, you like show business history, so you need to read this book. I remember when I first got it in 2008, I was working at the Canadian Screen Training Center, and I read it every day walking to and from work. I would hold the book straight out in front of me, thinking this was the safer way to walk and read. I could see traffic, I could see people coming at me, but everyone knows the safest way to walk and read is to listen to an audiobook. So sign up for Audible today by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. That's audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. You can find the link in the show notes. Remember, your first book is free, and you can cancel any time. But signing up through that link really helps this podcast. Now on with the show. And in one of the books on the kids, Scott talks about how in the early days, he was a very strong sketch writer. I'm wondering, do you feel like he leaned on you in order to get material on the show? Or how did it work with you? No, I think we, we both learned from the other four. Um, with the kids in the hall, it's funny because teaching sketch writing i'm i'm aware of all i like breaking down all the components and and teaching them how to do dialogue how to do character how to create an environment all those sort of things with kids in the hall it was just they needed to express something and they just did it in a way that it took the perfect shape of of sketch comedy and i think we all learned together um and also because Writing for the stage allows you to improvise and, and experiment. But at a, at, a point, at a certain point, the audience has had enough and they want to move on to another sketch. 
you become aware of the audience's role in shaping the material. Then with television, it's a totally other game because it's, it's all about seconds. You know, it, this is like four minutes and three seconds and it's too long or whatever. So television is a very exacting beast and the stage is much more of a laboratory. But between the two of them, you come up with something that works. You know, a lot of times we'd write a sketch, we'd shoot it, and then in the editing room, it would take shape because you'd see obvious cuts. Things that we felt had to go in weren't necessary once it was all shot. You go, well, we can see that. We don't have to hear it. So again, editing is like a final chance to actually shape a scene. So because we were always involved in every step of the process, they weren't just actors, they were writers and producers of their own show. Um, so because you see every step of the process, you really get really good at it. You know what TV requires, you know what stage requires. Yeah, I think that the original show really had it down to an art form. I remember watching it as a kid and I'd be, I'd be almost mad at the, at the commercial breaks because you you wouldn't want the show to end or you wouldn't want that sketch to quite be over yet or you or you want it just to get on to the next thing. The writing was just so succinct and, and crystallized and the idea that it was trying to convey. Um, I remember you know, truly being frustrated with the commercials back then. You'll love the new show because it's for Amazon Prime. Yeah. So there are no commercials. It's a solid half-hour episode where everything is just seamless and flows. And um, I think you'll love it. What was the writer's room like? My understanding is that various members would pair off and then go write something, then you'd come back together. Can you take me back to what that writer's room was like? Well, the writer's room was a lot like a big rec room that you can slob around in. We always had TV and, you know, means of playing music. We'd have food there. Um, so it wasn't just the confines of a boardroom table in an office. It was a playhouse. Um, everybody had their own office. We all worked individually and at our own pace. Um, and that was something Bruce established. He said, you don't have to be here from like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can write at home and just show up for writers meetings. So a lot of times we'd be in the office just because it's community. We would get to see each other and sketches erupt like you're sharing a laugh with Kevin. The next thing you know, it's a sketch. It just, the, the personal chemistry always led the way towards the material. So the office was really important in terms of that's where we gathered. That's where everybody, that's where the kids were the troop, right? Um, and bringing in writers, of course, they were all friends. So it was just extending that, that group of friends idea. Um, that said, when we'd have read-throughs, that's usually where you'd see the tensions arise. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, read-through could be anywhere from two to three hours long, a massive pile of paper, uh, people reading stuff. Everyone's nervous because they want their sketch to work. We had to trust each other's laughter in order to know whether it did work or not. Were the read-throughs done on a weekly basis or were they done as a season? Oh, no, I think it was about every week or two we yeah. have a major read through. Um, you know, the way the show was done is that we do um, a studio block, which was um, 
two shows or enough material for three shows uh, shot within front of a live audience at CBC. But there were also the film blocks, which were all done on location, sometimes with different directors. Um, and then those sketches were edited and played during the, um, the live tapings, usually as a way to get costume transitions and stuff, right? Uh, the live shows were excellent because they were really done like shows. I mean, they were tight. We'd have the shadowy men on a platform playing live music. Uh, we always had an opening comedian to, to do warm up. The kids went from sketch to sketch to sketch. It was a show. Then usually after the show, if something needed to be picked up, like we didn't get a shot of the pen, uh, they would do that separately, sometimes without the audience. You wouldn't necessarily need an audience for a pickup shot. And then uh, there'd be two shows at 7.30 and at nine. And so we do this whole thing twice. So usually the first show is a dry run, ironing out the kinks. The second show is invariably better. But quite honestly, the editor and the director could use material from either show to build the sketch and editing. Right. So it's a, it's a film rehearsal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with a live audience. And yeah. our live audiences are great. It was mostly young kids who are very loud, um, like about 100 of them, uh, sitting on really uncomfortable bleachers, like in a high school gymnasium. And I think the lack of comfort is better for a comedy audience. Because I remember going to a comedy show where the entire audience was sitting in these like these big lazy boys. And you were just so comfortable. You did not laugh. You're just like, ah. and but having people sitting like this on their haunches perched forward is actually much better physically for laughter. And watching the show back, those those pieces that were recorded in front of a live audience really have an, an energy to them that a lot of um, sketch shows don't have. Saturday Night Live being the exception, when you watch Saturday Night Live, you really feel that the electricity of the live audience and the live aspect of the performance. And I feel like that is present in those early kids shows. It's important for, for comedy. And I'm always telling my students, you can't just write junk and put it on YouTube for your entire career. You do need a live audience to make you understand what works and what doesn't, quite honestly. And it gives energy back. It's an energy return thing. I think it's so important for comedy. Now, apart from Scott, did you partner with anyone else in the show to write sketches? I wrote a little bit with everybody. Mm -hmm. um, Kevin was always easy to write with. Um, Mark always had really strong ideas. Same with Bruce. Probably not too much with Dave, although there was the Francesca and Bruno stuff. So you write with everybody. I mean, you're hired to write with everybody. And they made it clear, you can't just be Scott's writer. And I said, that's fine. I, I mean, I knew all the guys. And it's a, it's a question of knowing what they like, knowing what their strengths are, knowing what they want to do as performers. All that is really important. Who was the hardest voice to write for? Well, none of them. They're all very distinct and easy to write for. Sometimes it was hard to write with Mark because Mark had a long process, which means you'd have to hang out for four or five hours before you even sat down in front of a computer to put something down. Um, he liked to take his time developing ideas. So, you know, a lot of us would dread it. say, oh, I got to write with Mark tomorrow. Okay, see you at midnight. You know, that sort of thing. But then the results were always so good 
that you knew, and this is your job. When you're hired to run a TV show, it's not nine, nine to five. It's all the time, right? So you're always, you always have to make yourself available to the production and to the process. And we've, we've talked about your relationship with Scott, but I, I'm wondering if we can go through each member of the troupe and, and talk from your point of view, what you thought they brought as, as individuals to the group, what their, what their strengths were and what their individual contributions were. Well, Scott brought energy because he was so loud uh, on stage. I think the other four realized that they had to uh, bring up their energy. Um, and it made a difference, obviously, because it made them all better in order to have to rise to that level of, of activity. Um, Scott also brought the like, political component. And, and he was the one who really, really um, encouraged the female characters. They were there from the beginning, believe me. But that might have stopped before the television show started. Scott really wanted to drive that because he realized how good all five of them were at doing female characters, which is not the same as drag. Drag is like, you know, look at me and all this. Female characters are, how do we show our wives, our sisters, our mothers in a way that makes them fit for these comic scenes? The kids weren't that interested in other actors, to be honest. They were very insulated troupe. And to this day, the five of them are still alive. They've, there's never been a sixth kid in the hall, despite what people think. Um, and it's not an easy fit for other actors. And what about Kevin? What did he bring that was unique to the group? Well, Kevin's a natural comedian. He's very zany. He's almost like a silent film comedian. He's very expressive with his face. He's got the best comic voice. It's like right up there with the Norm Macdonald voice or the Gilbert Gottfried voice. It's a voice that is so distinct and so comedic. Um, Kevin's got great energy. He's really, um, he, I remember one time they were doing a sketch and it was going kind of badly. And all of a sudden he just faked the heart attack in order to get out of the scene. And it brought the house down. Um, and another time him and Scott were doing something and his pants started to come down gradually. And he was so good at working those angles. I mean, he'd take a mistake, a, a, a mustache was sort of half falling off, anything like that. Kevin would work it and, and he really knew how to get laughs. He was so strong at it. And what were Mark's strengths? Okay, we'll talk Mark. Yeah. Mark, of course, is the best mimic in the world. Mark could do things like he'd listen to a record at a slow speed and he could replicate it. He could do any accent on earth. Uh, he could talk gibberish. He could talk backwards. He had a great ear. And he was always able to reproduce what he heard. Um, he, he just, his performances are also usually perfect, I have to say. There's something about Mark that, as a performer that's really, really uh, unique. Um, who else now? Bruce. Bruce is so alpha. Bruce was kind of the, a, a leading light for me. I mean, he taught me more about comedy than maybe anybody. And also how to be a, a comedy writer. He was really good at saying things like, you've got to pace yourself. You've got to guard your energy. You can't allow this to happen. Um, and, you know, his sketch writing sh showed a kind of a thinking that I'd never seen before. He, he makes these amazing connections between things. And his sketches did, I mean, you look at Cabbage Head, 
as an example. I'm king of the mercy fucks. It's essentially a kind of a shitty Catskills comedian with a cigar. Uh, in fact, he used to do a character called Trowmouth, which was exactly that. But then one day he thought, if this isn't enough, put a big cabbage leaf on his head and turn Trowmouth into cabbage head. How do you do that? How do you make that kind of logic leap to improve the character that much and to create something really iconic? So Bruce's intelligence is just fierce, as well as his work ethic. I mean, the guy is just... And then, and Dave Foley, to me, is one of the great wits of all time. Um, he can reduce me into a puddle of laughs very, very simply. He's so great at one-liners. He's just... He has that attitude where he's kind of like strolling through life with a, a twirling an umbrella. I mean, there's a magic to Dave Foley. Two years ago, I almost died in hospital. Everyone was very concerned. I was literally on my deathbed. And then I came out of it. And Dave tweeted something to the effect of, well, typical Bellini. He's too lazy to even die. And I remember when they told me that, I was still hooked up to all this stuff. And I couldn't stop laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd heard. And it was the laugh that brought me back to life. So I have to thank Dave publicly for giving me that. Um, instead of, you know, sympathy and concern, <laughs> he found a way to make a really hard joke. And it just worked so well. I guess he knew how much I would love it. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But that to me is, is Dave. Dave's a kind of a genius wit. And the last thing I wanted to know was... Um your interactions with Lauren Michaels. Did you, did you have an opportunity to interact with him much or was he pretty hands-off by the second season? Lauren was always hands-off and that's a very calculated move on his behalf. I think he knew better than to get in the way. He, he chose the kids because they had a giant pile of material that was ready to be made um, and that they were a self-functioning group, that they did not need a guiding hand not his anyway. So, and also he was busy doing SNL. So he was very hands-off, but I'll say one thing about Lauren Michaels. I've only met him three or four times. He always remembered my name. And he, um, when we were putting together the DVD package back in like 2003, and somebody had to interview Lauren uh, on behalf of the troupe, and he asked for me and I was so flattered. And I don't know if I did a very good job, but I remember flying to New York and sitting in his office and asking him questions for 20 minutes. And to me, it was like, I always kind of had, uh, had uh, like I was in awe of Lauren. As a kid growing up, I used to watch the Hart and Lauren Terrific Hour on CBC. I understand you've just spent four months, 50 fathoms below the surface of Hudson's Bay. Well, that's true, yes. <laughs> You are a mountain. Yes, I am. I have the belt and the red and everything. Yes. I'm a mountain. You don't know who you are? No. Oh, I know what you got. You got, um, oh, don't tell me. I took it in school. Welcome to the Hart and Lauren Terrific Hour. It's going to be terrific. Terrific. Hart and Lauren Terrific Hour, 9 o'clock tomorrow night, 9.30. So for me, this was like a very famous person. You know, Lauren's the king of comedy. He's launched more careers than maybe any other producer of the 20th century. And a great guy. And I think he has an unerring good taste. And what can I say? I mean, I, I've, I've always been so impressed by him. So impressed. 
Well, that was my interview with Paul Bellini. He can currently be seen on the new Kids in the Hall series streaming on Amazon Prime, as well as the documentary Comedy Punks, which is full of Bellini's home videos from those early days at the Rivoli. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It is co-produced by Sonia Jamini. If you like us, follow us, rate us, give us a five-star review. We have a new Instagram account at Once in Hollywood North. If your appetite for the Kids in the Hall isn't yet sated, head over to the Canadian Made podcast. Their latest episode has a featured interview with Gary Campbell, head writer for the current season of the Kids in the Hall. I'll be back in a few weeks with a new series covering David Cronenberg, so please come back for that. And until next time. All good things must come to an end. See, although Bellini understands many languages, the one word he has trouble with is goodbye. I'm not about the media original. Hold on.